Hey, good morning. Are you uh, sufficiently dried off with a warm beverage or whatever you need? Oh, no, it doesn't sound like it. All right, so there's more warm drinks out there. I have a cup of coffee, and uh, I, I promise you, you will eventually dry off. So thank you for coming out in the rain. I appreciate that. Um, if you've been around for the past couple weeks, uh, you know that we have been talking about and leaning into a major cultural, sociological, societal movement, transformation, shift. I'm not exactly sure how to label it that's happening in the United States these days. So in the U.S., for a little recap, there's a religious group that is growing faster than any other. And this growing group is known as the religiously unaffiliated those who, when asked to name the religious group that they belong to, choose none. So oftentimes, they're actually referred to as the nuns, N-O-N-E. And because I think nuns have not given up their, their they, they're definitely affiliated, N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S, not so much. Okay, so according to the most recent research, this group now outpaces mainline Christians evangelicals, and Catholics as the largest religious group in America and has grown from about 12% of the population around 10 years ago to 24% of the population in less than 10 years. Not only that, 40% of millennials, 40, 40%, 4 out of 10 are nuns. And of that group, 76% come from a church background. People, particularly young people, are disaffiliating with Christianity at a rapid, historic rate. But not here. Not actually in this room so much. And I know because I know your stories. Because we've talked. We've been in the same small group. We've had coffee. And I know that a lot of you have been on the edge before and asking yourself the question, do I want to follow Jesus? Uh, because you're troubled by some of the things you see in the world. And some of you, you're on the front end of faith. You're curious. You don't even know where you want to land on Jesus. But you know there's certain things you don't want to be or become. And when you see those things in the world, it troubles you. You know, one of the things we've noticed over the years of what we, has become a place where people land before they quit, or a place where people have a chance to think through things before they quit, is that those things don't just happen by accident. You may not know this, but we've actually made some intentional decisions on how to create a certain kind of community. So that's what we've been looking at uh, the last few weeks and the next few weeks into the future. What are the things that we have chosen to do? What are the things we have been intentional about to create a community where there's space? Where there's space, freedom, and safety to think through faith. We've learned some things, and I want to make sure that you remember them, or at least know that they are things. 
because you probably feel it, but you may not know where it comes from. So one thing we've noticed is that the same issues tend to trip up most people. They're the most common hang-ups. So last week we looked at, what do I have to believe? That's a big one for a lot of people. And this week we're going to tackle another challenge to faith by considering the question, what about terrible Christians? I'll just pause for a moment. Take a drink. There's, there's no alcohol in here, I promise. <laughs> just coffee and cream. Now, I, I got to be honest. Uh, I really don't like that this is a challenge for people of faith or for people considering Jesus. Uh, it really bothers me, actually, and I don't say this likely, but that this is the most common concern that I hear. And whenever I run this group called Faith Reimagined, which I love to do, uh, it's actually a really fun group, but it's a, a, a design space for people who want to think through uh, the things that bother them about the Christian faith. So we've created this thing called Faith Reimagined uh, where we do that. And the first week we do an exercise to kind of figure out where people are coming from and what the biggest challenge for them might be. While I'll never forget one group that I led where every expressed concern connected to not any intellectual challenge, not anything philosophical, not anything about how to read the Bible, but to a negative personal experience with actual Christians. And as the group progressed and everyone shared their experience, each story was awful. It was sexual abuse, emotional abuse, excommunication, some kind of rejection. And so today, we're going to look at how that can even happen. How could people who follow Jesus, a God synonymous with forgiveness, grace, and love, do horrible things and feel justified in it? And if that's been your experience, how do you, or how should you, or how could you get beyond that to experience what we believe is the fantastic life that Jesus, Jesus offers? Sound interesting? So let me just say, I have to admit that this is actually a really tough question to answer in a sermon <laughs> without coming off or actually being judgmental yourself. To say that someone has missed the point is also to say that you can see more clearly than they do, which is a dangerous thing to do. Like, I figured it all out, and all those other people missed it. But the truth is, no matter where we find ourselves in the course of history, there is no guarantee that in 100 years, our kids or grandkids aren't going to look back at us and think, what the heck were they thinking? How could they miss it so bad? It seems so obvious to us. And I think that's true of everyone in this room. So I'm hesitant to be too confident in my own ability to kind of be above the fray. At the same time, I also want to ask for forgiveness in advance. Some of the things that we've seen some Christians supporting or doing or not doing, some of them make me angry. And I just want to say that, and I don't know how that might slide into what I say this morning or bleed out through the edges. And I'm no better than anybody else. And things affect me emotionally, and I can't pretend like they don't. But I've had my own experiences of shock or disbelief or disappointment. So... I hope 
And please have grace for me. I hope that with just a really big piece of humble pie, we can take a crack at this question because it's a big deal question because it comes up more than any other. And actually take a look because there are examples of, of, of this in the stories of the Bible. Uh, stories of earnest people, confessing people, religious people who miss the mark in the most terrible ways. And there's a group, religious, churchgoers, serious Bible people who give their money, who pray, who are zealous in their commitment, in their conviction, and their obedience to God. Folks who are waiting to embrace the Messiah. And for lack of a better term, in the Bible, they're the bad guys, right? Not that they're inherently evil, but they're the ones who oppose Jesus throughout the gospel stories. They're the ones always fighting with him, speaking out against him. They're the ones who get him arrested, put to death. They're church people, and they completely miss the point. Some of you have a little background in Christianity, know who I'm talking about. It's the Pharisees. And at one point, Jesus turns directly to them and tells them this story. This is Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to you. I'm no longer... I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, 
You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So that's a pretty famous story. Even if you don't know the whole story, uh, it's often called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, When you hear it, who do you think this story is for? Who should it inspire? Who should it challenge? Well, I know my whole life growing up in the church, I've got a lot of years in the bank. I heard this story a few times. And I think every single time I heard this story, uh, it was all about the younger brother. He's the prodigal son. Prodigal means wild or lavish. So this title refers to the younger brother runs off from his awesome dad, spends all his money, hits an extreme low, comes back, and expecting to be lower caste, but the father embraces him. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story of forgiveness, a story of grace, and it's a powerful image of God the Father with open arms to anyone who would turn to him, right? And I don't want to take anything away from that. But that's not the main point. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? That's, that, I've seen paintings of that. Rembrandt has a really famous painting of that, Brad. Rembrandt. He's a famous painter. Have you heard of him? He's kind of famous. And it, I mean, it's a beautiful story. It's, that part of the story is powerful. It's worth paintings. But it's not the main story. Well, how do I know that? Well, there's a few reasons. First, basic storytelling. And Jesus was a really good storyteller. Can we agree? Basic storytelling. You don't put the big bang, bang at the front of the story. You let the story build to the main point near the end. Right? The climax of the story is the interaction of the father and the oldest son. The faithful one who stayed behind and worked hard. Everything builds to that. And if there's any doubt, remember who Jesus is telling the story to. It's not the sinners and tax collectors. It's when the Pharisees come up to him because he's spending time with them, and he turns to them and tells the story. This story is for the Pharisees, not the wild people who run off and leave God behind. Although it's great for them. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it's not worthy of paintings. But the main point, the main audience, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. See, what the religious people hearing the story may not realize is that they're guilty of the same sin as the younger brother. It just presents itself in a little bit different way. So the younger brother wants to take control of his life. He wishes his father's dead, basically. I can't wait for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. And he runs off, and he spends it, and he tries to make happiness on his own terms. And he rejects the father in that way. The older brother does the same thing. How? I mean, he seems like the polar opposite of the younger brother, right? But he does. He wants control of his life, too. He tries to obtain it through rigorous obedience. You see, in his mind, if he follows all the rules, 
his father will have to bless him. He'll have no choice. And he's using obedience to manipulate his father into blessing him, and therefore he rejects the father in his quest for the same thing the younger brother wanted, which is control. So both brothers are trying to take control, but in the process, they're also losing what they really need, grace. Grace is powerful. It's life-changing. It's empowering, but we only experience it through some point of need. Notice that when the younger brother comes back home, he is prepared to admit his need. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's hungry too, right? And what does he receive? Grace. Grace as demonstrated in embrace and a totally amazing party. And the life he was trying to create on his own, he receives as a gift. That's grace. And that's what we risk when we try to control everything in our lives. When we take control, we lose grace. And this is how we can end up missing the whole point, like the older brother who won't go into the party. When we lose grace, moralism pushes out love. What is moralism? That's just a fancy way to say uh, an approach to life where you nail it down. You figure everything out. You take control by knowing all of the rules and following them religiously. That's what moralism is. And from a moralistic point of view, you know the right answer to every question. You can use those answers to be pure and... You can follow all the rules so well that you no longer need grace. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave, even, gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I've done everything right. I've mastered the system. I've checked all the boxes. Give me what I'm owed. That's not grace. And taken to its natural end, moralistic folks unwittingly end up trading the experience of grace for the theology of grace. You figured out what you have to believe to be covered by grace. High five. So who actually needs grace? You're in control. But when we lose grace... We lose the heart of the Father. And we can see that heart in this parable, but the older son is completely out of touch with it. He doesn't get it at all. See, being right becomes more important than being loving. And when being right is more important than love, you can make some horrible choices and hurt lots of people. So this is one way earnest, faithful, sincere, Jesus-professing people can do horrible things in the name of their faith. Because they know what is right, and someone is crossing one of those lines. 
we also lose grace, or when we lose grace, the world, because, the world becomes us versus them. When we lose grace, the world becomes us versus them. What do I mean? Well, look at how the older brother responds to his father. He says, But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, dot, dot, dot. This son of yours. Did you catch that? Not my brother. This son of yours. See, grace is what connects us to each other. When we experience grace... We're in touch with our own weakness, our humanity, and so we see ourselves in other people. We see the connections. Other people become our brothers and sisters, and we're not so different. See, moralism is about drawing a line that determines who's in and who's out, who are the good people, who are the bad people. The older brother, in his mind, is the good people, and his brother's the bad. And when you start making that distinction, when we start to make certain people other, when we start to judge them and can't connect to them as brothers and sisters, then we also don't have to treat them the same way as people that we see as in. Suddenly, it's okay to treat them differently, poorly, oppressively. There's no us and them in this parable. There's just one family. And some people are lost, and some people are being found, but they're all related. And so we can see here, I think, at least a few ways that things can go off the rails, where people claiming a God of love can lose touch with love and do terrible things. You know, we've all, I think we've probably all tasted some of this reality, haven't we? Let me ask you. Why are you here? Some of you have had profound disappointments at the hands of people of faith. Why are you here? Well, hopefully, let's start here, and we'll come back, we'll circle back around to that question. Hopefully, you felt the embrace, and you know that the party is awesome, right? That's why you're here. You have felt that hug from the Father, and you've gotten at least a taste of the party, and you know it's good, right? And that sort of outdistances anything else for you. You know, at one point, I was facilitating a faith reimagined group, the same one I mentioned earlier. And without thinking, <laughs> I paused for a moment and asked that same question. Why are you still here? And I don't know if that's like Pastor 101 type of question. Why are you in my church? What are you, crazy? Why are you here? That's kind of what the context was. And I knew when I asked that question... I had to leave every option on the table. You know, maybe the people were all brainwashed by their Christian histories. Maybe like a partner in a codependent, abusive relationship, they just couldn't help themselves but come back to the source of the abuse. 
Maybe it's all that they know, and they're afraid to live a life without church. And to deal with that question, every possibility has to be a viable choice. But maybe it's something else. You know, as we talked, uh, one word, I noticed one word kept coming up in everyone's story. Uh, And that word was should. Um, Every person who shared always expressed how they felt they should have been treated, or how the church should have been helpful, or should have protected, how Christian community should have accepted or loved. What I mean is that everyone had a picture of how Christians should be that focused on the characteristics that people know reflect the heart of Jesus, unconditional love, acceptance, grace. So their time in Christian communities, no matter how imperfect, had communicated something to them about Jesus. They couldn't be shaken, despite the negative experience that they had. Another option for why they persisted, for why they were at a group like Faith Reimagined at all, after all their disappointment, another possibility arose. What if their perseverance was connected to the fact that they'd had a very real experience with a real living and good Jesus? That more than any mental illness, he was the thing that they couldn't shake and really wanted, despite all their frustrations with other Christians. And this was where the group, by their own accord, landed. Not only had they experienced a good Jesus in a real way in the past, but being able to express the hurt that they had experienced at the hands of other Christians or the institution of the church, being able to express that in a context of Christians or with or as part of a group of Christians where they were still accepted even after sharing their experience, that for them helped confirm what they had hoped. That Christian community really should and can be an environment of unconditional love, acceptance, and grace. And being able to say the things out loud, that some of the terrible things, and have someone turn to them and say, that's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And that person be a Christian was powerful. So how do we know if we're doing this, if we're staying connected to grace, or if we're accidentally falling into these traps that are easy to fall into? Well, here are a few signs that we might be missing the point. The first is this. When life doesn't go my way, I feel bitter. You notice it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Life isn't easy. And Jesus uses a party to describe life with the father in this instance. But he uses other pictures sometimes too. Like a seed that falls to the ground and dies so it can produce many seeds. And like his life, which included suffering, Following Jesus does not shield us from pain or tragedy or suffering. But if we think it does, when those things come along, we won't just feel sad or disappointed, we'll feel betrayed 
and bitter. And bitterness is a sign of older brother syndrome. I did what I was supposed to do, God, but you didn't. You owe me better. But we can't control God with our actions. And if we're becoming bitter, it may be a sign that we're trending away from grace and towards self-dependence. Another checkpoint. I feel like I'm living out of joyless duty. I've been slaving for you. Duty will kill your relationship with God. There is no healthy, it is my Christian duty. It does not exist. We always are called to follow God because we know that when we do get more of God, that's a really good thing. That's the motivator. Now, I'm not saying every day of your life you're going to feel that or believe that. Sometimes you make choices in faith, not feeling that. I'm not saying that when you don't feel like it, oh, whatever. But I am saying that if duty is your motivation, it won't take you very far. It's like saying, I'd rather be out there with that younger brother. He's really living life. But... Because I have to, I'm going to sacrifice the fun of life to follow you. Aren't I a hero? That's, that's missing the point. That's not what it's about. Following Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field that when it's found, a person who found it goes and sells everything that they have to buy that field. It's that good. And this is an instance where the word should is not helpful. <laughs> Next, another sign. I'm not sure of the father's love. You notice the older brother says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I.e., you never, you never threw me a party. This is a tough one. Right? If you don't feel loved by God, I don't, I don't want to pile on. But I would like to suggest that the embrace that the younger brother experiences in this parable is also available for you. That that is the heart of God for you. That embrace. That Rembrandt painting. If you know what I'm talking about, Google it. Not right now, though. That's the heart of God for you. And he doesn't want that love to be an abstract idea or a theological concept or something you read about or just here in a really amazing parable, he wants you to feel it, to know it, for it to be more real than I'm standing here talking to you. And if you haven't felt it, or if it's not an ongoing reality in your life, and we have different seasons, I get that, but it's, it, it can be easy to just sort of slip right into the older brother mode and start trying to earn the love of God or the favor of God or we don't feel it to turn to wild living alternatives that promise assurances of escape, but really just bring you down in the end. So I would encourage you just to ask for this, pray for this, memorize scriptures like, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his father saw her and was filled with compassion, ran threw his arms around and kissed and 
if I'm feeling these things, the things I just listed that could be trouble signs, how do I come back from it? The way back is this. This is a fun one. Boast about your weakness in community. You know, it's a younger brother gets, oh, you know, it's the younger brother gets that he's messed up. And that's a great start. God will respond to that. We can actually lean into this. 2 Corinthians, a key Bible verse. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So you've got to have a team. You have to have some safe people that you can admit your weaknesses to. Because when you lose that, life is much harder and things can get off track. So if you've been hurt by a, a Christian in your life and you're, you still feel it, and believe me, like, people are people, like, they hurt you everywhere, right? It's not, I'm not saying that, I'm definitely not saying Christians are worse, hurt more people. But if you've felt some of that, who is safe in your life? What Christian is safe? Because you need them for healing in your life. Paul writes this, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, in a letter that was read in front of an entire church. And he's just finished talking about his thorn in the flesh, which was such an obvious problem that he had that he didn't even have to tell them what it was. He just said, you know, my thorn in the flesh, remember that? The whole church heard it read in front of everybody else. You don't need to do that here. No, really, don't. I, don't. I don't know if that would be a good thing. But, but you do need a team. You need people. Uh, let's pray. So, Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me for any way that my own past has sort of worked its way into what I've shared today. Um, and I pray that whatever is helpful and good and of your spirit will just connect deeply into our hearts and help us into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.